Oh, I forgot to cue you. <laughs> Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 234 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. Uh, Steve, we're not 23. Uh, I wish we were 23. Do you have any other 23 references to wedge in there? Uh, I was going to make a 234 reference, which is that, you know, I went to PS 234 for elementary school. The PS 234 fighting, you were what? We had no mascot. The fighting fighting Tribeccans. Um, (laughs) Actually, that would have been great. That would have actually been really cool. Uh, So he's Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Hello, everybody. We are... Back, I am totally losing this bet, but Bobby, Bobby, <laughs> man, to his credit, he has been on lock with getting us to record early and often. You dangle a free meal in front of me, and uh, here, here's, here we are, podcasting on a weekly basis. <laughs> Something you and I both have time for. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, it forces us to stay current. It's and- true. This past week, the Supreme Court was busy with something we both were really interested in, and this forced us to pay attention to it. Uh, God damn it. Uh, Well, we've got a uh, big case at the court, or a pair of cases, we should say, Tomna and Gonzalez. Indeed. Twitter case, a Google case. They're two very similar cases. They present two different issues. Two very different issues. Uh, One of them is a kind of a core traditional national security law topic. That is the proper interpretation of the Anti-Terrorism Act from the mid-90s. I'm I'm glad you agree with me that that one is the core national security law case. 100%. Okay, good. Yes. This took some doing in the public discourse. Well, the public discourse cares primarily about internet law issues. And the other one tees up the question of, well, it tees up the Section 230 yes. question yes. from the Communications yes. Decency These, these are often portrayed as the 230 cases plural, and the reality is that I think especially after the oral argument, it's the ATA case it's with the, the 230 ATA. trailer. Yes, indeed. So we'll, we'll break down and prognosticate and lay it all out for you. Um, why don't we quickly knock out this one little bit, which is a uh, – this is under the heading, y'all, of our recurring theme – of uh, situations in which the United States is still engaged in high-value target capture or kill operations in what you might call the the Syria theater. Uh, These are anti-Islamic state operations. And on the 18th, there was reporting about a capture operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, They located and succeeded in capturing uh, a guy who is a provincial official for the Islamic State, as it were, uh, in Syria, and it was described as a United States and Syrian Defense Forces combined operation, um, and it seems like it went well. It doesn't sound like anyone got hurt in the operation. The important part about it, I think, is simply to remind folks that there continues to be uh, a counterterrorism detention set of issues. It's just that the United States has long since figured out that we're not going to be in the business of administering the detention for a whole host of reasons that would be familiar to anyone who works in this area. Um, but that doesn't mean detentions aren't taking place, and it doesn't mean the United States isn't playing a major role in those detentions. It's just that in the context of the Islamic State in that region, it's SDF that provides uh, the, the detention in practical terms. Uh, and there's a whole set of issues that are super interesting, but that never get any attention and don't seem ever likely to see much uh, light of day, as near as I can tell about what is the extent of U.S. access and control and involvement in those detention facilities. Obviously, there's some, um, but beyond that, there's not much we can say, and it doesn't seem like people are very interested in it. And please note, of course, I'm not suggesting that this is uh, illegal or problematic. It may may indeed be that we've just hit upon sort of the the optimal set of circumstances, 
Um, I'm just highlighting that we used to obsess over every detail of this sort of thing, and now you just can't get anyone even to pay attention to it. So here we are, waving that little lonely flag. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to pay attention to Guantanamo, which is an actual U.S. detention operation. You know, I guess that's what I think what kind of in some ways sort of irks me about the situation is that to me, in, in many ways, it's more interesting and more pressing. What is the ongoing, continuing, steady state practice of our current lived times? Um, which is not to say that the legacy situation at Guantanamo isn't important. Obviously, it is. Um, but, it, but it also clearly occupies this place in the public's mind that is still very visible. And so the, the littlest thing will happen there, and there will be coverage of it. Yeah. And then something very dramatic will happen overseas, and we don't pay any attention at all. Um, I mean, I think, I think in some corners that's probably a, 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 a feature, not a bug. Oh, 100%. No, I actually think from the point of view, like if I'm in the White House, that's, that is the defining feature. Yes. It, is, it is the best part of the yes. whole deal. And it's, it is why uh, presidents of both parties have long, long since figured out, going back to the late Bush administration, that to the extent possible, we just shouldn't be administering detention ourselves. And then lo and behold, all the frictions, so many of the frictions kind of wash away. The downside, of course, as we saw at various times in Iraq and at various times eventually in Afghanistan as well, and as we've sometimes seen even in Syria with the SDF-controlled facilities, um, if we're not administering it, then the permanency or sustainability over time of it, of the, of the capacity, is uh, not only not guaranteed, but you might say guaranteed eventually to, to disappear. Yes. And so you, if insofar as there is any person within one of these, let's call them uh, partner detention facilities, uh, who you feel from the U.S. perspective really needs to be incapacitated for life or, or needs to be prosecuted to be held to account for particular acts as opposed to uh, detention during the midst of an ongoing armed conflict, um, well, you better get them out, but we usually don't. In most instances, we haven't. Okay, well, let's pivot to the Supreme Court. Steve, um, what, what, what's, what's the Supreme Court? Yes, well, they, they've done something of interest to us here, <laughs> or, or maybe they won't. Um, let's do this. Let's first talk about, in general, about the Anti-Terrorism Act, mm-hmm. and then we can get into the, as you put it earlier, the trailing issue of whether when, when civil liability is sought against an entity under the Anti-Terrorism Act, a very small subset of entities, but a very important subset of entities who might be in that situation, they can raise Section 230 as a defense, or can they? That's the two sets of questions. Is there Anti-Terrorism Act civil liability separately? If there would be for right. an ordinary company, if you are an internet uh, goliath right. like Twitter or Google, do you get the benefit of Section 230 so it turns out you're not liable after all? And the irony is that that's actually backwards from how these cases came to the Supreme Court, how they've largely been portrayed in the media, um, and how they've been discussed in most public forums. But I think that's the right way, both from a significance perspective and from an analytical perspective to think about it, because the sort of the Anti-Terrorism Act question is a cause of action question. It's like, do the plaintiffs have an affirmative claim? And then the 230 question is, do the defendants have an affirmative defense? 
Do you think so? So I think it's that's right. And it's clear. I think the Supreme Court is going to analyze it this way. We're not sure what they're going to do, but yeah. um, this is sort of the framing that felt like how they were thinking about it. too. Which, rightly which, so. It's logically the right way to think. about well, it. Well, so so you say rightly so. I, I will say I, I think that's going to end up being unfortunate um, because I, I, I don't think they're going to come out correctly on the cause of action <laughs> question. Yes. I, yeah, you do have a dog in this fight. So, yeah. So I should say so I, I, I have been as Bobby knows, and I think as we've talked about briefly on the podcast before. I've been part of a team of law professors who spent much of the last four years going around and filing amicus briefs in most of the big cases about secondary liability under the Anti-Terrorism Act as um, sort of conferred, created, expanded, whatever, by JASTA, by the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act of 2016. We filed an amicus brief here as well, basically saying that on the scope of secondary liability here, the Ninth Circuit got it right. Um, We should say what these cases are about. Right. Sure. So, well, well, before, before uh, we do the cases, let's yeah. do sort of a, just a, a high altitude overview. Yes. So, what we've really got here, Steve, is a bit of a deep dive. Deep dive into the cases. And uh, mindful that a lot of our listeners may not be lawyers or law students, let's just say a few things uh, in a real abstract way about primary liability versus secondary liability. And, and also the, the civil and criminal distinction. So, in, in our legal system, like many systems, uh, the set of possible consequences for criminal uh, violations of the law, of course, extend to things such as imprisonment, maybe the death penalty, fines, that sort of thing. And there's a whole apparatus of heightened procedural protections. Uh, But perhaps most importantly, when it's a criminal law matter, we're talking about um, the Justice Department at the federal level deciding to initiate the charges. And so it's the government versus the individual accused. Uh, In civil liability, you have people potentially bringing suit against one another. Could be the government also, but it's it's different stakes. It's different process and rules all taking place in the same kind of courts. Um, But there's a whole apparatus in American law of both statutory bases for suing people and at the state levels, also common law bases for suing people. Um, And the reason that's important is from time to time, a legislature can decide to create some new ways you could sue people, new scenarios for which you could get a monetary or injunctive recovery. Civil liability as opposed to criminal liability on the idea that the state is not the only one injured. Exactly so. And so um, in the 1990s, there was a, as, as growing appreciation, particularly for the problems of international terrorism, were occupying the minds of people in Congress. And I'll note here, one person who in that period was heavily involved in lots of the statutory efforts, although I'm not sure you, you may know about the ATA, uh, Joe Biden, yep. as a senator, this was like uh, one of the things that was often on his plate, and he's very visible in the record of things like the creation of the two material support statutes, which we talk about on the show all the time. There's a 1994 criminal statute that makes it a crime to, I would describe it as effectively aiding and abetting um, an act of terrorism. And then there's the 1996 statute that is the uh, more of the broad em- embargo on designated foreign terrorist organizations, but often overlooked uh, in today's world because those two criminal statutes from the 90s are so visible is the civil provision, the ATA, the Anti-Terrorism Act. Now, it, it comes out in that same period and creates a, a mechanism that was designed to make it possible for, you know, usually the survivors of victims of terrorism, if possible, if they can get their hands on an entity that 
aided and abetted or, or supported or perpetrated the act of terrorism. So the per, so right perpetration, right? The, the direct, that was there from the beginning. Direct responsibility was always there, right? But there's a fight from the moment the ATA is enacted, there's a fight over what whether and to what extent it authorizes what's called secondary liability, right? You are not the perpetrator, but you, it, you supported, you conspired, you aided and abetted, you did something else to sort of indirectly um, allow the, the act of international terrorism to take place. This reminds me of how in the early post 9-11 period, I, I know you were, I think, either involved or certainly were writing about some of the litigation yep. where people were going after banks, where yep. Hamas had uh, maintained bank accounts, including accounts that were sometimes used in ways that could be linked. I think it was with payments to families, yep. that sort of thing. Um, and so there were attempts to bring banks in particular uh, to account through civil liability mm-hmm. for, for doing business in particular ways with designated foreign terrorist groups. And it raised interesting questions such as, uh, could you have ATA liability for doing what could be right. uh, described as the separate crime of material support? So the government's not prosecuting you, but could you turn that into civil liability? And so, as you say, there was lots of litigation and lots of uncertainty about the boundaries of this sort of second tier liability. Second in the sense that the first tier or the principal liability, it's the acts of terrorism, it's the acts of violence and so forth. When can you find mechanisms to attach civil or criminal penalties to entities that are involved in some sort of supporting role? And you can imagine the whole spectrum that runs from having really narrow rules that only get at people who absolutely know and intend to facilitate the primary harmful act. Who have specific intent. Exactly. Or you could modulate it to be more expansive. If you want to err a little more on the side of, let's just make it harder for anyone to help those groups. And then you lighten it up. You don't require specific intent to facilitate the particular harmful act. You could make it, say, enough that you you knew. Or you could go further and say that you, you maybe you didn't know, but you were reckless in not knowing. Maybe it could be strict liability, you know, if you do anything with these people. Um, these calibrations of what we call the Sienta requirement that's where a lot of the action is in fine-tuning any society's rules about just where, if at all, you want to impose either criminal or civil secondary liability on those who are not the terrorists themselves, but maybe are interacting with them in some way. So that's kind of the backdrop. And then, Steve, tell us about JASTA, which comes along much more recently and, and amends the ATA, I guess we can say, in an effort to clarify and to lock in how some of this works on the civil lawsuit side. Yeah, so so JASTA has two different sort of features. The one that got a lot more attention was its effort to make it possible to sue Saudi Arabia um, for its alleged involvement in the 9-11 attacks. Um, the part that got a lot less attention were Real the, quick on that. Yeah. Was that was that all about overriding the sovereign immunity yes. that this so it was kingdom a, would have had otherwise? Yeah, so it was about basically taking two specific sets of holdings that the Second Circuit had reached in the 9-11 litigation and overruling them and making and expanding the scope of the so-called Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, the second part of JASA, which got a lot less attention, was was a response to the, the rulings to which Bobby alluded, the series of decisions sort of struggling with the question of secondary liability under the ATA, the most prominent of which was an en banc Seventh Circuit decision called BOEM III um, versus Holy Land Foundation. Um, where Judge Posner wrote what really was, I think, the sort of the canonical middle of the road, some secondary liability, but not a lot of secondary liability opinion. How pragmatic. Indeed. 
Um, so Josta, Josta is a bit of a sledgehammer, right? So Josta says um, our purpose is to expand to the fullest extent possible under the Constitution of the United States the liability of those who support directly or indirectly acts of international terrorism. And in the process, it amends the ATA to expressly authorize aiding and abetting and conspiracy liability, Bobby, under the framework of this 1983 D.C. Circuit decision called Halberstam versus Welch. Yeah, which, by the way, is it's a fun read. It's interesting because the fact pattern is a little crazy. Right, so it's, it's like kind of a good little local crime story. Yes, and it's a, and it's, it's a great panel. I mean, the D.C. Circuit panel that decides Halberstam is um, Wald, Bork, and Scalia. Yeah, it's an all-star team. So, the, so the, the issue in Halberstam, I think this will help to summarize where the law is, right? Yeah. So Linda Hamilton, um, not that Linda Hamilton, <laughs> um, is... is That'd be quite a twist. That's that's our episode title. Not that Linda Hamilton. That, okay, writing it down. Um, so Linda Hamilton is uh, sued. So uh, there there's a burglary gone wrong that leads to the murder of a Washington area doctor named I think it was David Halberstam. I might have the first name wrong. Um, but anyway, so Halberstam's family sues um, not just I mean the murderer right uh, Welch, yeah. but they also sue Linda Hamilton. Hamilton had no direct involvement in the murder. Hamilton was Welch's live-in partner and basically his right hand for his criminal enterprise. Welch was a serial burglar. Um, and so Hamilton was keeping the books. Hamilton was running the the smelter they had to melt down the stuff he was stealing. As, as one does. As it's, one does. It's completely innocent. Well, so so yeah. but 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 the point of Halberstam is that um, Hamilton could be held liable for Welch's murder civilly, right? Not criminally. Even though, at best, her knowledge was about Welch's uh, criminal enterprise, right? That 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 she had no knowledge that Welch was going to kill Halberstam, right? She had no intent for Welch to kill Halberstam. She may not even have intended for Welch to commit burglaries, but she knew Welch was involved in quote a criminal enterprise unquote, and she provided what the DC Circuit calls substantial assistance. Um, to Welch in the furtherance of that criminal enterprise. She's, that she certainly did. And so Halberstam's out there as this fairly famous, because it's it's a long and scholarly opinion yes. discussing secondary liability and the particular ins and outs of aiding and abetting in particular. So it functions, it talks about the restatement, and yes. it functions a bit of, as a bit of a restatement, and then it becomes oft-cited, including, it turns out, when they were drafting JASTA, in the findings not in the operative terms, but in the findings, Congress expressed in the statute that their aim here was to create aiding and abetting, aiding and abetting a la Halberstam. Yep. I think they actually named the they case. Do. They do. Yeah. So you couldn't you couldn't have clear evidence that they they intended uh, to incorporate by reference the framework and the analysis of aiding and abetting there. So that raises the question, and, and there's a reason we're going into this, y'all, because this is kind of how we analyze the case against Twitter, Tomna. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, it's a, a, at first glance, a three-part test. Sounds real simple, but it's yeah. but like like any law professor's question with three parts. Yes, each part has subparts, yes. or, or at least one part has many subparts. Um, should we should we lay out the the basic elements of that? Uh, why don't we Why don't we introduce the Twitter case and then explain why the Twitter case like is is. A challenge for Halberstam, right? right? Okay, so 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 the, so the these are a series. There were three different civil suits arising out of three different acts of international terrorism perpetrated by ISIS or ISIS-related or ISIS-inspired attackers, um, and the suits were brought against uh, Google, which owns YouTube, 
um, Facebook Meta, right, and Twitter um, on the ground, alleging that all three platforms had helped to facilitate ISIS's uh, acts of international terrorism by providing it with a platform for communicating, by providing it with a platform for disseminating propaganda, by recommending ISIS posts as a result of the algorithms in in those you know built into those sites. Um, and so there were three different lawsuits. Um, all three are dismissed by the district court at the motion to dismiss stage, and they're appealed at the same time to, to the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit actually consolidates them, at least for purposes of the opinion. So there's one opinion to govern all three cases. Um, the third case sort of falls out. It doesn't. It's not really part of the story in the Supreme Court. In the Gonzalez case, right, which is which we'll get to when we're done with with Tamina, um, the court. Uh, basically says, no, Gonzalez, you can't sue uh, Google slash YouTube because they have 230 immunity. Um, in the Twitter Tomina case, the district court had not reached the 230 question. Um, and the Ninth Circuit chose not to either. The Ninth Circuit, all the Ninth Circuit said was that the district court was wrong to dismiss because we believe there is a cause of action under Josta. We believe that at least at the motion to dismiss stage, the plaintiffs have plausibly alleged that Twitter knowingly provided substantial assistance to ISIS's international terrorism conspiracy. Um, and that, you know, that may not turn out to be true once there's evidence, but at least the allegations are enough to establish that under JASTA. So it's it's very important that it was at the motion to dismiss stage. And one possibility that lurks in the background of this is that there will be some fancy footwork yes. about how, well, we may not reach the, we may not set forth a clear interpretation of the legal boundaries here. We might instead say that whatever else is true we're at the pleading stage. You got to let the case develop further. But let's let's proceed on the assumption that yeah. it probably won't go down that way, and we yeah. need to get into the question of how best to interpret these two statutes, the right. ATA right. and its and its aiding and abetting provision. And then, if there is an ATA claim available yeah. under JASTA's interpretation or uh, amendment to it, then what about Section two hundred and thirty of the Communications Decency which, Act? Which neither fallback? which neither lower court reached in Tabata. I mean, this is one of the things I think doesn't get enough attention is that. Not only is Tomina not a 230 case, but like neither lower court even met, talks about 230. So it's possible that even if the Supreme Court affirms in Tomina or digs, we'll talk about it, dismisses yeah. and probably granted, it's possible that Twitter still wins on 230. Um, right? I mean, that, that issue hasn't come up yet. Well, but so, but won't Gonzalez, you know, their handling Indeed. of Gonzalez yes. is where that comes yes. in. All right. So, so the question is whether Twitter knowingly provides substantial assistance to ISIS. Um, right, um, and that we should probably I should dig up the precise language while you're setting. So it's it's 18 USC section 2333 paragraph D subsection D, um, and Twitter basically makes they say it's three arguments. Bobby, I really think of it as two arguments. Um, one is about knowledge, and one is about substantial assistance. Um, so Twitter's primary argument about knowledge is that um, even if Twitter was loosely aware of the fact that um, ISIS was using its platform, that ISIS was um, you know, communicating through its platform, that ISIS was interacting on the platform, that the algorithm was recommending some ISIS-related tweets, um, that it didn't have any knowledge of the particular acts of international terrorism that gave rise to the liability in these cases. So the question under the knowledge prong of the statute is, must what is it you're supposed to have knowledge Correct. of in order to be liable? Is it is it that you knew the particular action that resulted in the particular violence? What's going to happen? Yeah. Did you, can you link it to that? And obviously, 
clearly, no, and no one's alleging, the plants are not alleging, no. that any of these companies actually knew the particular right. It's all about right. the general enterprise. You knew that the organization was pursuing its organizational growth and, and functioning by exploiting your, your platform. And Tomna itself is about the Reina attack specifically. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, right, no one says that Twitter knew about the, about the Reina attack. Um, the question is, did it have to, right? Um, so Twitter's position is one step more nuanced. Twitter says, we didn't, it's not that we had to know about the Reina attack. It's that we had to know that like our platform was being used to facilitate specific acts of international, now, not necessarily this particular act of international terrorism, right. but specific acts of international terrorism as opposed to just ISIS's general bad terroristic aims. So I think it's helpful here, especially for listeners who are familiar with the material support statutes, yeah. which are not at issue here. Yes. But if you're familiar with those, the difference between the 94 section 2339A statute and the 96 2339B statute is really illuminating. The whole point of having both those federal criminal laws is they do different things. 2339A, the 1994 statute, requires you, when you're providing material support to a person, it requires that you know or intend for that support to be used in aid of the commission of, and then there's a long list of offenses. So there's that, I, I would describe that as sort of the Twitter position here, right? Um, in contrast to 1996's 2339B, where it's just a general embargo. And as long as you knew who was getting the aid, that's enough to make you liable. And I feel like one way to understand Twitter's position in Tomna is to say, look, we're not saying you'd have to prove we knew the rain attack was coming and that something that happened with our platform was being used to support that. We are saying that it's not. It's also not enough just to say, like, hey, you know that the Islamic State Exist. people <laughs> it exist and that it sometimes is able to use Twitter despite, and it must be said because we haven't said it yet, it's not like Twitter wasn't trying to keep Islamics. Now, they, they improved their efforts over time, yes. but no one's alleging that like they flat out didn't care, as one of the justices said, that they had a let a thousand flowers bloom yes. on our, our platform. Yes. Um, so, so the question although, is... Although I will say, I'm not sure which way that cuts, right? Because the fact that Twitter was trying cuts a bit against their argument that they're being held liable for inaction, right? I mean... Uh, but we'll, we'll come back. To well, that. I get, yeah, the more nuanced thing is to say, we're the, the, if I'm Twitter, I'm yeah. saying you guys, and I actually think they're right about this. Uh, you're effectively saying somehow, in, in in a way you're not specifying, we were legally required to try X percent harder, X percent more effectively. Where's the evidence that what we were doing isn't enough? So, so to I get think there? so. So you're uh, forgive me for being a little bit um, um, critical. You're doing exactly what I think a lot of folks who look at this case are doing, which is conflating the knowledge question with the substantial assistance question. I, no, I, I was I was not talking yes. about the knowledge. Okay, I, good. I good. wouldn't. I was I was not conflating it because I meant to be talking about. Th the that I apologize for him. <laughs> but no, but but, the, but I'm knowingly wrong. But but this to me <laughs> is the point though, which is that I actually think the meat of this case is the substantial yeah. assistance question. And I think we saw that with was it Barrett. I yeah. think in her question. But, but just to tie the there. bow on the on the knowledge piece, right? Yeah. I actually think this is the part of Twitter's argument that is the hardest to square with Halberstam. Because in Halberstam, there was no allegation that Hamilton had any knowledge, forget the murder, I mean, right, that, that Hamilton even had knowledge that Welch was a burglar. Um, right. The the if you read the 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 DC Circuit's opinion, it's that Welch was engaged in a criminal enterprise. And um, and Hamilton had knowledge, or at least there was reasonable evidence from which the jury could infer that Hamilton had knowledge of the criminal enterprise. That seems to be a pretty capacious it, knowledge requirement. It's interesting because 
it, it's tempting to assume it's sort of a, it's a binary. It's, yeah. you, you know, you know, the thing right. that's being done or you just know generally as a criminal, but it's probably more of a spectrum. Yeah. And I definitely think the degree and the nuance and particularity of her, her role in smelting the gold that would mysteriously <laughs> come home. It's like, you know, it wasn't just generally, I know he's up to no good. I know he breaks the law, but I'm not sure how, like she was somewhere on the well, spectrum. So, right. so, there so I think between. I actually think Judge Wall's language is she knew that he was involved in property crimes right. at night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like okay, well, like yeah, and I think that gets you pretty close to the but, but, implicit but it, knowledge of burglary. No, no, but but fine, but that's still I think closer to the Twitter case than maybe Twitter wants it to be, right? That right. Twitter knows that what ISIS is generally up to, right? And so so this is why I think it really rises and falls on substantial assistance. Um, so here's here's the language in in the text, and this is you know so Gorsuch was at great pains to try to get away from you know enough Halberstam talk. Like, can we just read the text? No one was buying. And well, it was funny because Seth Waxman, who was arguing it uh, for Twitter, was I, it was interesting because Waxman's such a, a capable and experienced litigator, but re- at least reading, I didn't I don't know how it sounded when you listened to it, but reading it didn't the sound it didn't sound better. No, it, it was rough. Like it was a rough yes, ride. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm I'm. A, Lighting a lot of the text, but then it gets down to the liability provision. Um, liability may be asserted as to any person who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism. I think the first thing to say is that's not terribly well written. Yes, yes. And that is the root the, of the, the conspi- problem. The conspiracy clause messes up the grammatical flow of this. Absolutely, of the yeah. Clause. So if we allied that, and that's in Gorsuch was very funny. He's like, I'm, I'm putting in the dots. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a yes. ellipsing. He, yes. Can you, is that a verb? Ellipsing? I'm ellipsing? To ellipse something. I am ellipsing. I think, I think technically it's right. It's a dance. An ellipsis is an omission. So I think you are omitting. Yeah, yeah. But it's much more fun to say, I'm going to ellipse this. All right, well. Ellipsi. All right. I, still, I still think not Plural that would be Hamilton's is better. Yeah. I, I guess that's probably no. true. All right. Anyways, back Ellipsim. to... Yeah, let's see if I can say it the way that... That was a Hebrew you. joke, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> Wait, translate that. Oh, just in Hebrew, a number of words when they're plural are im, right? Im? Like a kibbutz, ah. like the, per, the plural of kibbutz is kibbutzim. Ah, okay. So this is the same move as being like, oh, octopi. Yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> Syllabi. Um, okay. Liability may be asserted as to any person who aids and abets the person who committed such an act of t- international terrorism. And so Gorsuch and Waxman had this exchange where Gorsuch was really focused on, this the is person. about the person as the object. You're aiding and abetting a person. And Waxman was saying, well, no, it's it, you're aiding and abetting the act of terrorism. I think that's a little bit of a false distinction, that, or, or they were sort of talking past one another. The right way to think about it is the plain text way, which is you're aiding and abetting in a, a person in connection with the act of international terrorism. I think Waxman was trying to make it make a lot hang on that weight yes. so that you had to specifically know, intend the particular act, and yet he was conceding that you didn't really have to prove that, and that's why the text just doesn't quite work right. for his argument. Right, which is, why I think, which is why I think if you believe that Congress meant to, if you believe that, Halber, that, that any inconsistency between the text and Halberstam should be resolved in favor of Halberstam, Right, that or any ambiguity in the text, right, should be resolved in favor of Halberstam. That's why I think it's a it's a tougher yeah. road to hoe for Twitter on knowledge than on substantial assistance. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And like to put the final point in, so I think Waxman, the text won't quite get Waxman where he needed to for Twitter. But at the same time, it's also not true that it's just 
it's just a, a coincidental distinguishing feature that right. this person or entity engages in terrorism, an act of terrorism. No, no, it's got to be there, – there's some sort of middle space that I think they were groping towards here. And then you got to look to Halberstam right. to so, figure out right. how to mediate so, that. So Twitter says, right, you have to know that – right, so Twitter says it's, it's that the substantial assistance has to be, right, substantially assisting the criminal enterprise. But again, that goes to criminal – that goes to substantial assistance, not to knowledge. Right, but, but again – and so I think, I think yeah. Waxman say like, that's not what the text says. The text says – it talks about the act. So um, the the substantiality prong is the much more available way to think about this because when we look at the fact pattern with uh, what Welch and Hamilton were doing as a as a sort yes. of a crime family, that's where this case looks harder. Yeah, th- this case I think is unquestionably. It, it may not be far enough away. I think it probably is far enough away. It may not be. Yeah. But it's definitely not on all fours in no, any no, way. Not on, I don't think anybody's claiming it not is. Not on substantial assistance. But I, the, not on all fours. The question is whether Halberstam's analysis up, would also apply to these facts, right? Like, like is Halberstam the edge case or is Halberstam an easy exactly case? Exactly so. Right. Exactly so. So, so and here we've got, a, a, we've got some number of steps away from the Halberstam yes. paradigm, which we accept is right. at least that much is included. But take, but take another JASTA case, right? So there are a series of JASTA cases against banks, right? Banks who are um, who agreed to non-prosecution agreements with the United States for violating any number of federal regulations when it comes to financing of terrorism, um, right? Um, they, right, are on record as having knowingly, right, been sort of funneling all of this money to terrorist organizations, knowing that they were terrorist organizations, knowing that money is fungible, knowing that the fungible money could be used to facilitate acts of international terrorism, right? That, to me, is in between the Twitter case and Halberstam. Yeah, that's, um, that sounds a little bit like, a little bit maybe even stronger than Linda Hamilton's position. So I think if we take the Linda Hamilton, so Linda Hamilton's there at home between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. Welch goes out. He comes home with lots of gold coins and such things. And then she engages in lots of uh, practical assistance with the consequences of this stuff coming home. I guess the the uh, plaintiffs would say that the equivalent here is that Twitter's at home. They have these things that are useful to right. the Islamic State. Right. And they could, ordinary business services, yeah. and they're on. Re- they're they're reasonably aware. Of, they understand who the Islamic State really is. In fact, they know much more right, clearly than we do who who the Islamic State is than Hamilton necessarily knew yes. about Welch. Yes. If if we take it at face yeah. value, yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, Twitter. So Twitter knows more about who the bad guy is in the situation. But what they're doing is is very different from Hamilton. I think to make it analogous, it would be as if Linda at home. Has happened to have some gold smelting uh, stuff and other capabilities, and was trying with some degree of success to stop her husband from using it. But it, but she wasn't as effective as she could have been, and sometimes he managed to use some of the things that that were useful to him that belonged to her. I think that's the position that the platforms are in. That no one claims they want this stuff to happen. It's it's a question of are they are, were they trying hard enough to stop yeah, it, considering I'll, I'll, that they know that. Welch is coming home to Twitter and using their stuff. Although there was one really awkward moment in the oral argument where Seth Waxman's like, you know, not everything ISIS does is terrorist activity. I read that and I was like, dude, 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 dude. <laughs> that, that, there, I know what he means. You know, it, it I know what he true, means too. But right. it's like, just right. don't, like this like, is not helpful. Like, they've got to eat. It's, like, <laughs> it's not a good look. It's not a good look. It's like, listen, sometimes they just want to comment on the World Cup. That's right. It's like, That's right. that may be true. Right. But just... It's not going to help you. No, I definitely. I, I'm. I can imagine that 
It almost felt like he probably regretted saying that. As I hope so. Soon as he did. So, so the que- I mean, right? The question is, what makes what makes something assistance and what makes it substantial, right? So, yeah. so on the assistance part, I mean, I, I guess it's even if in the Hamilton hypothetical, right, where she 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 has the smelter right over there and she takes some, you know, she puts a lock on the door of the room of the smelter. Yeah, and right? she keeps coming and be like, God, he got in there again right. last night. Right. Um, you know, I still think that's assistance. It may not be substantial assistance. Because of her own efforts to interdict it, right, and that's where I think the substantiality is doing most of the work in this case, right. So, so Twitter's argument is that um, we don't provide bespoke services to ISIS. We're not providing any special. Like all we're doing is providing our regular right. platform, and our further, regular tools. If when we detect, right, we're actually when going, we know, right, we remove that account. Right. And so the question, and this is the position that the United States took in its amicus brief, which is that. Um, Substantial assistance requires some departure from ordinary business activities, right? That 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 it's that it it cannot be the case that secondary liability can attain just because obtain just because someone has taken advantage of your ordinary business activities. Right, and this is sort of the uh, the the helpful place that they that Twitter would like the mind to go is it's a slippery slope, and yep. now the phone company and the taxi cab service and Uber and everyone else uh, who's just providing arm they keep talking about arms length services. You know, it, it's interesting because it's it's a different argument than saying, look, we're on your side. Like, we're trying to stop this too. Right. So how can you position us as knowingly providing substantial support? And the problem is it's it's an intent kind of argument, and this isn't about intent. But like, our hands are clean. Yeah, it is. It's like, look, morally, we're right. on your side, and, we are act- and we're not just talking this talk. We're trying to well, do and, it. And this, is, and this to me is actually a problem that's baked into the statute. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm going. It, it suggests, it highlights that actually the statute probably should be written – to have it, I don't know, it's interesting because then you start thinking like, well, would you really bake in an intent requirement? What no. about the person who's recklessly disregarding no, no, I, the potential I wouldn't bake in an intent. No, no, but I do, think the cle- I, I do think that you can bake in a clean hands defense, right? That, that, so so not, don't put the affirmative burden on the plaintiff to demonstrate intent. That defeats the whole point of secondary liability, right? If they had intent, if they had specific intent, you can go after them as a primary, right? Um, but create additional, you know, maybe the answer is to create an additional affirmative defense that we were actually acting in good faith. Right, and then that distinguishes this case from the banks, who knew that what they were doing was illegal. Would I like that idea in principle? I'm thinking about the practicalities of settlement and yeah. risking going to trial. Yeah. Is that the sort of thing that, if you imagine a company that is in in good faith trying to suppress this contact as conduct, which I believe they were, um, would they have to go to trial to get? The yeah, that's, of that? that's that's the problem. Good faith opens up to like subjectivity, right? I mean, it could be objective. It could be a tribal issue of fact, and therefore you're going to have to settle the case. I mean, anyways. you could say object. You you could make it an objective standard. You could just say whether the whether the company acted unreasonably under the circumstances, right? And so in that context, the banks who are no, no who are knowingly defying. Um, exactly. Right, regulations that yeah, restrict the, certain the entity kinds. that's trying to make a dirty dollar. Right, um, they're not acting. They're, they're not acting reasonably. They're not taking reasonable steps under right. the circumstances to, right. to 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 prevent their assistance from being uh, taken yeah. advantage of. Whereas Twitter could come along, and this is interesting because it begins yeah. to draw attention to current Twitter in, yeah. the, in the stripping down yes. of the company's yes. uh, risk management practices and capabilities. If you have an apparatus, you can point to you and say, look, our resources are X, and using those, we have put a relatively strong amount right. of investment into trying to suppress this conduct. Except not today. Well, so I think there's a reason why that was not a central feature of Twitter's argument. Hard, yeah, you don't argue now. Well, um, yeah, they can win this case now, but the next case well, might be but, a little bit harder. But this is, but this to me is the problem, which is that I think the statute probably ought to reflect the distinction we've just articulated. It right, doesn't. But it, but it doesn't. Yeah, well, so the interesting question is the interpretive one of what is the text – 
capable of bearing this intent is it actually problematic to when insofar as this is an intuitive understanding of right. what it was they were trying to get at right. yes the the words don't clearly say as much that's the whole i mean could you try discourse. to retrofit onto halberstam some kind of idea that substantial assistance has yeah. to be at least i mean so so the, the argument yesterday there was a whole lot of discussion of like were we breaching some duty we had to a to to, to a third party right like yeah. you know that that for assistance to be substantial it has yeah. to be in breach but of that, some duty that seems like it's being grafted on yes yeah Yes. So anyway, so so this is a long way of saying that like I'm I'm in this weird position of thinking that Joss is remarkably capacious and probably does support the claims here, and that the Ninth Circuit probably got it right, but also that maybe the statute shouldn't, you know, go right. quite no, so far. Look, that. Let me just pause and kind of go meta, as we sometimes try to do. No pun intended. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Let me let me rephrase that. I just want to point out that we're here as as lawyers yeah. talking about the law. <laughs> And it, this may come as a shock to some listeners, but it is possible that the right legal analysis is different from what we think the right, the right the policy law, outcome right, ought to ought be. be. Yeah. That's what makes this a law school, not <laughs> school of policy. Indeed. Alone, at least. Indeed. So, anyways. But the justices sure yeah, seem... They're, they're uh, so, so, so this, this is why my hope had been, right, that... The, so going into this week, my hope had been that the justice would be like, we love 230, right? Like, yay, 230. <laughs> and then they could just punt on the ATA issue in Tomina and say whether or it's not. It's probably going to be the reverse I know, of that. But they could, they could have said whether or not there's an, there's an ATA claim here, Twitter has a 230 defense. Because Twitter almost surely does. As long as the court doesn't narrow 230, under the existing law, Twitter almost yeah. surely has a 230 immunity claim here, right? Um the problem is that the Gonzalez argument was such a train wreck, right? Yeah. That if I'm that 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 the the only thing I'm pretty sure of is that the court wants nothing to do <laughs> with the two thirty question in Gonzalez about algorithmic uh, uh, processing. Yeah. Where did okay? So we'll pivot to that. So the final thing to say about Tomna is I think both of us our read of the justices is they are very unlikely to affirm to, to affirm yeah. and to and the only interesting question is. Um, what exactly will they say? Will they identify and read into the statute a doctrinal line about what probably what substantial assistance means that in some way uh, exempts a scenario or protects the scenario which we have here where the company is trying? It's, it's, it's an arm's length service. Right. And insofar as it becomes, it definitely was aware there was bad guys using their service. They were trying to get rid of that. And I think they're going to come up with a rule that says, look, that that's where the line ought to be. Uh, I wonder uh, I wonder if Gorsuch won't go along with that on the grounds that that's just not what the text says. I, I mean, I think we're going to get some strange lineups yeah. um, in this case, whatever. whatever. Like, a, like a Sotomayor, Gorsuch uh, um, joint dissent on that. So some, yeah. I mean, I, it'll be, I don't think it'll be the, the obvious yeah. alignment. There was, there's several people pointed out. This was... If you read this transcript, it's it's a reminder that yes, for all the politics surrounding the Supreme Court, there are, there are plenty of times when they're in there doing the lawyerly yeah, thing, just and being this, lawyers, just being lawyers trying to figure it out. Okay, so um, everyone else besides us only really cared about the Section Two Thirty issue that was presented um, uh, directly in Gonzalez. This is Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act, famously, uh, you know, insert here the stock phrases about how the, these are the words that. Created the internet as as uh, Jeff as it, uh, the Kosif book uh, was titled that way. There's all these all these books about Section 230. All this commentary. What people need to understand who are fresh to the issue is that back in the Communications Decency Act, uh, which was largely uh, it was a complex set of things that were inspired by this idea that the internet 
is full of increasingly uh, disturbing and dangerous things, especially for children. Um, what could be done by statute to sort of facilitate and improve the chances of, of platforms themselves cleaning things up? There was an effort to make sure that the platforms who were willing to do so felt legally free to engage in content moderation on their own platforms to try to get rid of nasty stuff, especially child exploitation material. And so a shield from liability was created in some way, shape, or form. The language is complex. We're not going to parse it all here, I don't think. Um, a, a double-edged shield, right? It has two, it has two sort of two vectors. Yeah, talk talk about the two dimensions, right? So, so the first, so the first factor. So, his prior to the this two thirty. By the way, if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Stratton Oakmont is actually the firm is is a case about Stratton Oakmont that actually leads to two thirty. That finally gets Congress to move. Um, really? Yes. Um, but so prior to two thirty, there was this un uh, imperfect distinction, right, between whether you were a publisher or a distributor. Um, and if you were a publisher, you could be held liable, right, for even words written by somebody else, a freelancer or whatever. If you were just a distributor, right, then you weren't, you couldn't be liable for what you were distributing. Yeah, we just c- deliver the newspapers. Right. We're not deciding what's right. in them. But by the way, so it's clear, like what we're really talking about, what's at stake here is where everyone agrees that there's, let's say hypothetically, there is some inappropriate material. Right. Someone else, third party I has defamed, created. I defame Bobby on Twitter. Once again. I know. <laughs> Um, And so so you've got the actual sort of first instance speaker, but then the way that that speech, the way that the presumptively unprotected speech gets out there is the actions of some business that that is in the position to distribute it or to, you might say, publish it. And so there are all these questions. Congress steps in and basically says, um, you know, you can't be sued as a platform that is distributing the speech of others. Is that fair? Um, yes, I mean I want to pull up the exact language. So the, the exact language, the, the the sentence that changes everything, um, so the twenty six words is no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So I can sue you for your defamatory tweet, but I cannot sue Twitter because Twitter didn't speak it. Um, they're not the speaker. But, I, but, I can't say right. that they are in effect the So that's, that's well. one side of the shield. Yeah. The other side of the shield, which I think is actually just as important, is to immunize those platforms for taking down. Right. That was speech. the part I was focused yeah, yeah. So, on. Yeah. But so, so I think it's actually both sides that make the 230 work, right? Exactly. That, that not only are you not liable for what others speak, but you're also not liable for good faith removal yeah. of content that violates your own policies. Yeah. You're allowed, right. the, the goal was to encourage yes. companies to be curators yes. so that so that they weren't afraid, like, well, if I start curating the material on my site, right. I'm going to be deemed to be, right. I'm, I'm in effect choosing what people get to see, so it's now kind of my speech, which, by the way, starts to sound a little bit like the question du jour. Hence why you need both sides of the of the shield, right? Yeah. Um, and so basically, right, content moderation wouldn't be possible without 230 because right. otherwise you'd have a ton of liability of at least attempted civil litigation over everything. And so here we've got the plaintiffs who assume for the sake of argument they can sustain these ATA civil liability yes. aiding and abetting claims. And the, pe- right. yeah, the so, people they're going after say, well, uh, too bad that you succeeded there, but we've got Section 230 to exempt us. You can't sue us right. for it. Now, what's interesting is the, the plaintiffs weren't fools. They didn't say, we're suing you because on your site you re, you distributed and thus respoke right. these harmful and protected words. 
they're saying you provided a set of mechanisms, in particular, the recommendations algorithm that facilitated who saw what. Right. You amplified. You amplified and elevated beyond. You weren't just restating. You were selecting and choosing to feed to particular right. people. Your, your algorithm, you were not just a, pass, a passive uh, uh, sort of facilitator of content. Your algorithm promoted Right, right, this specific content in ways that that that, that take you out of the sort of two thirty. I'm right. just a publisher mode. So if you were, if it was a public square kind of physical comparison, you're not just an open forum where people are can just walk in and talk. And you're saying, hey, it's not my. I'm not responsible for what they say here. You're choosing. Okay, you you speak you now. You go listen. To, it's even different. It's right. like um, you've walked into the park as a listener. Yes. I want you to come over here because I want you to hear this guy. Yes. Not that I want you to come over here. Like, like here you he, go. He, you start playing the recording. Listen to this guy. Yeah, like the first person you're like, hey, hold on. You, you have to walk through this right. gauntlet of, of potential speakers. So so the the, the dirty little secret, I mean, the you know, I would encourage everyone to, to, to follow and read Danielle Citron on this. I mean, Danielle has been at the forefront of everything smart that there is to say about 230 forever. Um, no one thinks 230 is perfect. Um, right, I mean, the, there are. It is overbroad in some ways that are really frustrating. Um, there are real concerns that it doesn't create enough incentive on the part of tech companies to actually moderate offensive and harassing content. Content. Um, there are concerns the other direction, right, that yeah. it facilitates bad behavior, affirmatively bad behavior by tech companies. Um, concern, you know, there's a charge, especially common in conservative circles, that this allows tech companies to censor based on political viewpoint. Whatever. Um, 230 is not perfect. Um, the internet today looks nothing like it did in 1996, um, right? And so the question is just like, who is better situated to figure out what to do with 230, right? The Supreme Court or Congress? And, and I thought that the real, he's not always an open book. Like what he says in argument is not always particular of how he votes. I thought Justice Kavanaugh though was really sort of speaking for a lot of people when he said, you know, this statute's been around for 27 years. Like, yeah, there are problems with it, but I mean, aren't there reliance interests baked into it? The reliance interests yeah. are titanic. Titanic, right. And the idea that uh, what we ought to do is is blow it up now as somehow like, oh, here we... It's, and it's, force it's, Congress it's, to start over. Well, right. So there's two different dimensions. There's one There's one where you might say like, well, let's just come along and say, despite the fact that we waited 20x years to do this and all these reliance interests to build up, we're nonetheless just going to come right now, come in right now and blow it up. Yeah. That seems that seems awfully uh, imprudent. Um, I mean, yet, there were some people worried about that, but I think the argument... Sure. But I think the argument but no, is that there's, no, there's yeah. no interest. And and then the other idea that like, well, okay, but what about doing this knowingly? Like make, make it a total fiasco yeah. by blowing it up and then force Congress's hand. Who thinks Congress is going to be forced into anything useful right. or, or, or productive or would do anything at all? Right. Um, I think that 20 years ago, we might have thought that. Yeah. Well, and, and especially, I think, this Congress. Um, and I think the, the, what, what, I, what I found striking is I thought the only way for the plaintiffs to win, because they're the petitioners in Gonzalez, right? The only way for the plaintiffs to win, in my view, was to convince the court that there was some narrow way to carve out algorithmic right. um, promotion and algorithmic boosting, yeah. right, as sort of an exception to the normal uh, immunity that these platforms have qua publishers. Um, and I think it just became clear from the argument that there's no way to do that. They certainly didn't show up. In, so a lot of people have really been coming down hard on the person who, I, I don't know who it was. But Eric Schnapper. Okay, so a lot, lot of criticism. How, how could he not have shown up with a clear line to defend? Yes. Well, that assumes that 
there's an answer to that question, right. I, I it mean, would be right. persuasive. I, 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 mean, I, I don't know that we. Were, I don't know that anyone could have had a better. I mean, right? The, you argue the case you have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that DOJ. I, it could have been done more clearly, yes. but I also think that this was. This was not an argument that's very winnable because no one is that I've seen has yeah. yet really come up with a, a smart and uh, administrable dis- categorical distinction. To that bring that to doesn't just burn it all down. Exactly. Right. And, and, and then that and so that raises the question that I think is probably a good place to tie this all together, which is then why the hell did the Supreme Court take these cases? Yeah. So there was no circuit there? split. Right. So um, I think. Well, t- well, why did yeah. they take Gonzalez? I think Tomna's, right. no. so, I, think, I think I know why they took Tomna. Well, no, they no. took it to reverse it. No, but Tomna's a cross petition, right? So, 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 just a, let me be a weird yeah, Supreme Court it. procedure nerd for a second. That is your job, um, indeed. Um, so, so Gonzalez files first, right? And Gonzalez files a cert petition saying, "Hey, the Ninth Circuit applied two thirty and threw out our case." You know, Supreme Court, you want to revisit two thirty? And indeed, Justice Thomas has written. I think it's now three separate. Yeah. Um, of statements or dissents respecting denials of certiorari, where he has said, like, we should revisit 230, right? And so clearly Thomas, at least, and I suspect one or two other justices, were looking for a 230 case. So along comes victims of terrorism, right? Sympathetic plaintiffs, yeah. right? Nonpartisan, no, no obvious valence, right? And says, hey, the Ninth Circuit, the, you know, the big bad Ninth Circuit, has once again erred on the side of tech companies. Um, there were uh, two of the judges on the Ninth Circuit panel, my former boss, Judge Burzon, Judge Gould, in their concurrences, both said they had problems with the Ninth Circuit's pro-230 precedents that they were bound to apply but didn't like. So I think there was a lot of like, take this case to fix 230 in the petition. And then what Twitter did, which I thought was really clever, is Twitter said, listen, I don't, you know, the JASTA question is probably not cert-worthy unto itself. Mm. But if you're going to, they, they filed what's called a conditional cert petition, where they basically said, if you take the Gonzalez case, you should also take our appeal from the same Ninth Circuit decision on whether there's even a cause of action. Um, and Facebook and Google both piled on and said, yes, you should, Supreme Court. That is really interesting. That means that somewhere in somebody's office, somebody had the particular idea to do that. And I think that idea is going to pay out. Yes. And, and and the irony is that, right, the argument suggests that that strategy is actually going to be the winning one. Because, so, so, so two things to say about that. One, it allows them to turn Tom into the lead case. Yep. At which point the Supreme Court can say, we reverse in Tomina, no cause of action, right? Therefore, we don't have to reach the 230 question. So we vacate that part of the Ninth Circuit's analysis and remand. Exactly. Right? Um, and then just dump Gonzalez. Yep. But also, right, I, I think the other thing to say, and this is what I wrote last week in my preview of the cases on, on one first on the Substack, um, I think the justices got a little snookered. Um, like yeah. that the, clearly there there is a there's interest among the court, and I think I don't think I'm speaking out of school and say especially among the conservative justices to take up the question of big tech. And well, I, I think speech. it's almost it's you know the tech lash is yeah. what we're talking about. Yes, here. the tech lash is a thing, and it's got a bipartisan dimension. It's yes. one of those issues that has friends on both sides of the aisle. I would argue that the the uh, the more populist dimensions on both ends of the spectrum share an interest in trying to take down big tech as much as possible. And it kind of fuels these sort of ideas that surely there, surely there's something right. to be done here, but on close inspection. Well, t- 230 is not the, no, well, or at least 230 is not the path, 
right? Like, like, and so this is why that what I what I said last week, like, the, to me, that what this really underscores is that the cases the court really wants are the Texas and Florida content moderation cases, and right. those the net, are the net choice, the cases. net choice cases, where Texas and Florida both went very aggressively after like, passed these very aggressive state laws that that effectively prohibit or at least heavily limit big social media platforms from engaging in content moderation. Um, just to remind folks, right, the uh, two, di- dif- both district courts enjoined those laws. The 11th Circuit affirmed the injunction. The 5th Circuit reversed the injunction. Yes, yeah, so you got a split. They're super important. The Supreme Court's already weighed in a little bit. And am I right that those ca- – what is their procedural posture at so the moment? They're the su- held? The, so no, so the Supreme Court – I was sure the court was just going to grant them straight up. The court called for the views of the Solicitor General on January 23rd, right? So knowing that the Gonzalez and Tomlin arguments were coming. Um, this is There are two kinds of calls for the views of the Solicitor General, the yeah. CVSG. There's the, hey, SG, help us. Right. Like, we don't know yeah. what, what to do with That's these not cases. This. Or there's the, hey, SG, we know what we're doing, but we want to buy time. Yeah, Go yeah. off and take some time and write yeah. a brief. This is like, this, this is the, we're going to form a committee to, to work on this. Yes. Interesting. So, okay. so, so, so presumably sometime this summer or fall, the SG will file a brief that will say, hey, yeah, you should probably grant these cases. Um, the court will grant them. We'll hear argument, you know, early so 2024. So we'll be back one year from now to talk about the net choice yes. litigation. Yes. And that's going to really get it. That's the fight. These issues. Yeah. And, 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 and if I might say that, I mean, I have very strong views about those cases, but institutionally, that is the fight that it's appropriate for the courts totally to Totally agree. Because I, that's yeah. about the First Amendment, whereas this is about a statute that Congress wrote and that Congress, if, if it really is broken, Congress can fix it. Which they won't. Which they won't. But <laughs> we would not but, have jobs. I mean, exactly. I, 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 I agree. My, I tell my federal court students like every class, like if Congress was good at its job, we'd have no need for a federal court's class. If the world was perfect, we wouldn't need all these laws at all. Uh, exactly. Um, if man were – wait, what was it? If man were an angel, something, yeah, yeah, something. something. Something like that. I, yeah. I know the sentiment yeah. you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've been so serious for so long. That was that was actually uh, – That was like legit, like, like substantive. Yeah. Wow. We got we to put an end to that right here, right now. <laughs> um, friends, if you don't like to listen to the frivolity, I'll just tell you. We're, we're going to talk about the music of Journey and Toto, among other things. So you might want to We are? This is, this is news to me. <laughs> All right. Pivoting to frivolity. Steve, on campus last night at the Moody Center – uh, Journey on their 50th anniversary that's, that's, tour. That's crazy. I like how they leaned into just like, yes, 50 years. In Toto, the opening band was Toto. So there were. Uh, Did they bless the rains down in Africa? They blessed the rains down in Africa. So uh, here's my quick mini review. First of all, opening band Toto, I wasn't super excited to see. I didn't, didn't know a lot about them. I did have this vague sense I'd been told that historically that the core of the band, that these were studio musicians who were really capable, unusually capable musicians, and that the the current iteration of the band is a mix that's got a bunch of uh, more recent additions who were themselves, you know, really distinguished people. Uh, you know what? They were really good. They, ha- they had this guy, and I don't have any of the names in front of me, so I apologize for that, but they had a guy on the keys who had been in Prince's band. Mm. Uh, their drummer was another new addition who I gathered just won, uh, I think, just won a, uh, a Grammy a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you could kind of see they really centered the drums and the keys in a way that was really cool. But um, they play, They had more songs than I thought I would recognize. It's not just Roseanne and uh, Af- uh, Africa. 
Uh, there's Hold the Line. They did they did a really cool uh, cover of Joe Cocker's rendition of Get By With A Little Help From My Friends. Oh. Um, so it was really good. And uh, jo- they, Joe Cocker's rendition, of course, the opening music to The Wonder Years. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. What would you do oh, if I say attitude? Sorry. You know, um, the guy who played, so there's Kevin and Winnie as the sort of the. Yep, and the, Wayne's the older and, brother. No, right? And Wayne's the older brother, but then there's Paul, right. his friend. Right, right. Um, when I practiced law in New York, we had a case at one point. I was spending some time. I was at Davis Polk. We were over at Paul Weiss. And if I remember this correctly, one of the paralegals was Paul. Josh Saviano. And I wonder where he is now and what yeah. he's doing. But that was cool. Uh, Josh Saviano, if you're listening, give us a shout out. Well, you, look, you look him up. Uh, um, oh, he's a lawyer. I, I had to happen, right? Um, he is a lawyer. Where is he a lawyer? Is he a Paul Weiss? Uh, That's pretty funny. He's an American lawyer. Um, no, internet. I want to know where he's working. Spotlight Advisory Group, is that right? <laughs> yes. He's at the Spotlight... No, is that his employer? Or is that just... Yes. He's the co-founder and president of the Spotlight Advisory Group. Good job, man. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, then they exit the stage, and then out comes Journey. And, of course, the thing that's so f- interesting about Journey is that... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, that is Paul. Look at yeah, that. Yeah. Steve, show me the picture. So Journey's... Obviously, Steve Perry's not the lead singer anymore. Yeah. Um Something like I don't know what ten years ago they they brought in this guy who I only loosely know the particulars, but he was a guy who was basically like a tribute band singer. He was phenomenal. I mean, he really Steve Perry's voice you would you were, you're tempted to say is totally unique. Um, such incredibly high range, but also this scratchiness that gives it a lot of color and timber. And uh, this guy really did sound exactly the same way. And in a way, it's it's kind of not cool, right? Because it's 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 the most derivative thing, and yet um, it was quite a performance. And he was the guy's fifty something years old. He's older than me, and was so dynamic and energetic that my wife and I definitely were just assuming he must be in his thirties. I, I was kind of daunted by that. Neil Sean, still a ridiculously good guitarist, he basically got out on stage, started soloing, and he kind of never stopped. He just like sits there playing full speed the entire time. Um, they mostly played, you know, it's amazing how many Journey songs, yeah. if, you're, if you're of yeah. a certain yeah, age, yeah, yeah. a person of a certain age is going to recognize almost all these Open songs. Open Arms. Yeah, yeah. Faithfully. So, yeah, and so on the whole, I mean. Did, was, they, did, did they close with Don't Stop Believing? No, no, that was like their third or fourth song. And really? I thought, we talked oh. about this, it was, it's a flex when, when a song of that sort of magnitude is not part of your encore, because right. you have other songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyways, um, yeah, on the whole, really fun night, and... Uh, what about is, you? Is, is there is there a, is there a song? So this is a, this is an interesting question across like generation. Is there a song? I, I don't know. There, I'm sure there is. But like, what songs are more likely to show up at a, at a wedding than "Don't Stop Believing"? I guess "Sweet Caroline" is pretty high on that. Like of our generation, our our old people. I think "Sweet Caroline" is as popular as it is. Doesn't have nearly the penetration because "Don't Stop" yeah. got the huge boost by being featured so much in Glee. Yes, it, 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 a whole yes. new generation got yeah. real into True. that. I think mainly because of Glee. Interesting. Um, yeah, so that's definitely their most uh, lasting song. I, mean, I guess. There's I guess. I guess. I, on my side of the universe, the song that is most often played at weddings is "Havana Gila," but you know. right, you're right. That's, that's, or or some version of "Havana Gila" that bands yes. use for the horror. We should, we should probably we should probably narrow the category to specify pop <laughs> popular music. Um, yeah, pretty good stuff. Because we only know one song to play for the horror. <laughs> There's only one song you're allowed to play for the horror. Um, yes, I have not gone to any concerts lately. Um, okay. I've been buried under I don't know 
just life. Um, so Shadow Docket, uh, the yeah. uh, the trailer. I think it's cool. The book trailer. trailers yes, now. The, the video trailer. So tell, tell us about the trailer. Uh, the video, tra- the, the one minute and forty seven second video trailer. I've posted it to, to all the social medias as of this morning. So y'all check it out. It's it's fun because you can tell, and I confirmed that this was the case. You'll hear Steve talking very slowly and with this, and with this, no animation, uh, with a lot of low effect, shall we say, <laughs> relative to how Steve normally talks. Yeah. So if you're used to listening to this podcast, you might be like, "Who the hell is that guy?" It's pretty funny. And so here's here's what I really hope somebody does. There's also like very like is it classical music in the background? There's soothing music in the background. While all these uh, these videos are playing, I really think somebody needs to do a mashup. We need to replace what's going on there with <laughs> there needs to be some heavy metal, like create or, or some scary movie music, mm-hmm. and somebody needs to send us a mashup that we can circulate that redoes Steve's book trailer with a lot more edge. And I look forward to that. Uh, maybe some maybe some bad lip reading replacement of Steve's voice with some totally different narrative too would be pretty good. Um, Steve, any other frivolity in your life since last we met? Still watching The Last of Us. Um, still very good. Right. Um, I'm. I'm looking. I haven't yet started season three of Picard, although I've heard good things about the first episode. Um, Mandalorian is back next week, so like I'm falling way behind Man. on all the good stuff. Well, you're ahead of me. I haven't even started Last of Us um, and or for season my, two of Picard, for that matter. Indeed. And my so for my nighttime reading, I'm back to old Tom Clancy books. Oh, nice. Um, Which one are you on? I'm currently on Cardinal of the Kremlin. I, I think nice. we've had this conversation before. Yeah. I, I am. I am. I am a Cardinal of the Kremlin. Uh, uh, devotee. I think that might be his best. I, I liked that so much. I, my, I don't remember what I said previously. This probably yeah. isn't consistent, but at the moment, yeah. in retrospect, I liked Patriot Games yep. the most. That yep. one kind of spoke to me more yeah. personally because yeah. um, I had the interest in counterterrorism. Red Storm Rising is is good. I, I mean, Red Storm, Red, Red Storm Rising is like a series. Yeah. So, question: Is there somebody out there who is doing that same sort of? Um, that same sort of writing about the potential looming conflicts of our times. Yeah. I don't know if there's somebody who's in sort that of, I mean, I've, space. I've tried to read like a couple of recent like techno thrillers, and they're all sort of. I mean, I, I haven't found one that I've enjoyed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, part of what made Tom Clancy so uh, impactful at the time was he was writing with was with what was at that moment in time a really unusual degree of of informed perspective on what the actual yes. capabilities of the US military right. were and sort of the and the 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 what the sort of the pl- the plan of battle would be like how yeah. how things would actually unfold yeah all right well somebody out there is listening saying like no you got to know about you know this person all right send us your recommendations i mean also and also like you know russia being the bad guy again <laughs> well, I'd be I'd be really curious to see if anyone could really put together a a long form, really detailed uh, book that talked. I'm really more interested in what it would look like to imagine what what would go down if we went to war in the Taiwan Strait. Indeed, uh, this reminds me though. By the way, um, do you so you've seen Top Gun Maverick? Oh yeah. Are you aware of the conspiracy theory? Yes, I think it's so interesting. Um, tell let, let's talk about that i think it's really interesting so there is a there is a apparently now widely popular conspiracy theory that top gun maverick just about all of it is um that that uh maverick spoiler alert if you haven't watched this right but that in the mach 10 crash that happens in like the film's opening scenes that maverick actually dies and that the rest of the movie is like the last moments of his subconscious before he actually like Departs yeah. from this mortal coil, which explains some of the otherwise all too on the nose stuff with Rooster, you know, playing great balls of fire, maybe not being the right age, being um, so like his dad and having all these va- issues. It's so va- happily resolved. Vague identification of who the enemy is. 
Yeah, it, it very yeah, to say the least. Right, and just like the the perfectionism of it all, how it works out. Right, how yeah. so, how somehow they, they they do something that's insurmountable. Right, like I mean, so it's I mean like I, I don't I don't really think this is. What I don't they, think it's what they meant. <laughs> Otherwise, they would have you know used it or, or dropped some Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But I think it's a great reimagining of it that actually makes it a little more fun to, to kind of watch if you rewatch right. the whole thing, imagine it that way. And the argument, I mean, the argument is that like various things about the movie that are entirely implausible become entirely plausible. So, so like like Maverick surviving the breakup of a planet Mach <laughs> exactly. 10. Exactly. Um, so so you're saying it's M Night Shyamalan's uh, Maverick. Uh-huh. <laughs> this was someone pointed so cuz we talked about right Top Gun 3, right? And someone had put someone when we did that on on the show, yeah, yeah. right? Someone on on yeah, Twitter so pointed us to, to the, the conspiracy awesome. theory. Yeah. I see, I see dead Migs. <laughs> I see I see unspecified fifth generation Migs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess you're supposed to vaguely think they're in North Korea. Is that somehow? Or China. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway. Um, yeah. That's and probably it then. All I got to say, and then you are, you are, uh, you're back, but I'm going to uh, Richmond, Virginia later today. Nice. The, cap- the capital of the Confederacy. Well, it's uh, their campus, University of yeah. Richmond, is a beautiful campus. You'll enjoy mm. being there. Oh, have you been before? Um, I have. Um, yeah. the, the Spiders. Yes, indeed. Um, May, are they are they playing this week? Are you going to see Richmond's team? I, I yeah. don't think I, it's not happening. Um, I'm going to be there for like 14 hours. I thought maybe that was going to be part of your deal. Like I will come out. It's got to be on a game day. <laughs> that so I have that rule for Michigan <laughs> and for Duke. And um, actually, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Davis, who used to be the dean at the University of Kansas, got me to come do a faculty workshop in Lawrence With by tying it, by tying it to a game. <laughs> Uh, at 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 Fog Allen. Uh, oh, it that's was, cool. It was a couple years ago. It was Kansas Holy Cross. That's really cool. I think I could probably have that same way. Uh, um, this is so. So if you're listening, people who want to invite <laughs> us to come speak, you know, think about what kind of nearby athletic events you that's can, right. you if, can if entice you need, us If you with. need the uh, live recording of the <laughs> podcast, which we haven't done in a while, we have not. Um, for for the uh, com- most compelling games, where we will travel. All right, um, I got to be somewhere else in a few minutes, so we better wrap this up. All right, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. I talk a lot faster and with a lot more emotion than I do in my book trailer. I guess we'll be back next week because Bobby's just kicking my ass. Uh, stay safe out there. Adios.